Welcome to The Inner Game. I'm Gwen Garcelon, your host. Thanks for listening. The Inner Game is about how we nurture and attend to our mind-body-spirit health and how that allows us to play a bigger game and make a bigger contribution in the area of purpose that calls to us. And these are conversations with people who are committed to making an evolutionary difference with their lives from a place of balance and love and service. If you listened to the show in May, you've already met Sonia Lindman, or maybe you have along the way somewhere. If not, Sonia has been a beloved local educator for many years, known to some as the teen whisperer. She has been an addiction counselor and specialist, a candidate for Garfield County Commissioner, and recently she has developed a retreat center called Seventh Elder, which is on a beautiful and sacred piece of land outside of Glenwood Springs, Colorado. The goal of the retreat center is to serve the servants, to support healing and restoration for community servants like teachers, counselors, and first responders. Sonia and I decided our conversation needed a part two, so today we're speaking about some themes that are evolving in education and how they relate to evolutionary themes emerging in our culture at large. Welcome, Sonia. Welcome back. You know, after 30 years, you've said it feels like Groundhog Day (laughs) in terms of educational practice and policy and funding. How can we reimagine education to support the cultural shift we're being asked to make right now as a human family? The question is so enormous that um, it actually, I think, for most people, creates a an eye glaze um, they start to feel overwhelmed and so we tend to when we feel that way we tend to go back to our own experiences and um, it's not the same anymore for any of us who are in leadership or are in educational evolution um, it's not the same and so we continue to see the world through our own lens And it's transformed. So um, I used to build these massive flowcharts for people when we would begin these conversations. And they would go all the way back to um, where did education arrive? And how did we build the current public education system? And um, from my perspective, that's so myopic. Because... It doesn't serve our current community. It doesn't serve our children as they see a larger global perspective. It doesn't serve the marginalized communities that have a very, very different ancient understanding of what's important and what it means to sit at the feet of somebody who's wise. So we need to look at where we are now and where we need to go in order to figure out how to serve our children. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's different now than it was a year ago. Right. It's different than it was three years ago. And that becomes so complicated when we look at evidence-based, um, kind of the, the clutch of our leadership in education around federal mandates, around state mandates, district mandates, all of those, all of those organizational structures 
are hanging on to um, ancient structure, like structure that will say we need to have standardized expectations for all kids. We need to um, continue to build schools in bricks and mortar. All of those kind of visions started in the 1800s. They started long before that, and they're very European as well. So I'm imagining a listener going, what? We don't need school buildings? <laughs> right. You know, what is that? What would that look like? And why? Yeah. I used to, uh, I had a friend who used to laugh and make fun of me when I would say, all we need is a minibus for every teacher. <laughs> and she would say, what does that mean? You know? And um, so I, I go back on a journey a little bit because it's so easy to get lost in the complexity of these large flowcharts. And it's so easy to say, well, what do we do to change educational systems when we look at um, when we look at the social and cultural impact of all of that, which is, you know, identified through like Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Do we have enough food for our kids? Do we have shelter? Do they feel a sense of belonging? Do they feel a sense of love? Do they feel a sense of purpose? That's like basic need before we can even look at overlaying that with some of the ed- educational pedagogy like uh, this is where people glaze over, but Bloom's taxonomy, where you start with like information is important, and then you build on that, and you, and you move people's understanding of concepts and skills up through analysis and evaluation, until we're creative beings and we sit together and we solve problems. So we have all of these different layers of what it means to build systems, what it means to have leadership, and teachers who are, by the way, incredibly brilliant, and we keep getting in their way. If we got out of their way a lot more, um, they're heart-centered, and they want so badly to be able to serve our kids in ways that are inspiring instead of indoctrinating. Then we can look at what does it mean to build a system or a response in a community where kids are now bigger, and they don't sit at our feet waiting for us to come up with some brilliant list of curricular goals. They have access to all the information in the world. And I've had glimmers of hope over the years as I've thought about how our world has changed and what that means for empowering students to be self-learners and inspired learners instead of us as adults holding the keys to the kingdom. Like, what happens if a child says, I'm inspired, I'm enthusiastic, I want to be part of a creative problem-solving team, I want to be inquiry-based, I want to learn, I want to find my purpose. What happens when we build systems around those dreams? And there have been glimpses of that. Can you give us an example of, like, what's, a, what's low-hanging fruit? Like, where can we start to move to start to personalize that education rather than the standardizing that shuts kids down? Yeah. So um, let's go back to in the beginning when I started working in schools, I I grew up in an IB program, International Baccalaureate program. I grew up in a traditional home in, in the Midwest. I grew up um, honoring classical education and reading Chaucer and Shakespeare and um, quoting poetry and understanding the, 
the IB curriculum and Chinua Shebe and all of these different authors that were brought to us and what it means to be a global philosopher. And I believe in that. But then somewhere along the way, um, and I think historically it was very clear to me in my early years, so I was about 10 years into education and teaching, and I had received, I'd, I'd gone after my uh, Colorado addictions counseling degree or certification, and at that point we were talking about family systems and what is it that inspires some kids to do well? Why do some students feel a self-motivation and a belonging in school. And so I started to really dig into that and wrote a curriculum in 1989, no, I'm sorry, 1999, that was based on understanding ourselves. And by that time, we had already built a portfolio-based approach to education. And what so does that mean, a portfolio-based? What it meant was that we had, um, our goals were different. So historically, when you look at a standardized curriculum, and that's that's kind of where I was going next, I went back at that time and I got a curriculum and assessment master's degree. And the focus was on standardized by design. And you would go backwards and you'd build your goals. And all of the goals that we were building were based on content. It was based on content. So, so just things that kids needed to know, know to and move do. on. Right. So, yeah. And it was very measurable, and the metrics were really easy to follow, a lot of boxes to check. And so we, it, it didn't sit well with me because it was congruent at the same, it was happening at the exact same time in my life that I was looking at family systems and motivation and students' um, belongingness in school. And so looking at, looking at what it means when a student is unhappy, struggling, not feeling supported um, from a history of trauma, experiencing their own journey that is completely secretive in comparison to what they feel in school or the way they present. That story, that personal story, was trying to be shoved. We were shoving those kids into a box of standardized expectations based on content. So here's the glimmer. At that point in time, there was all sorts of discussion at the same kind of movement in history about no child left behind. There was a whole movement around 21st century skills. And that was process. That was process. How do we help kids understand the world? How do we help them work together? How do we help them be critical thinkers and deep researchers? And I got excited again. And I thought, oh my gosh, we're teaching, we're teaching kids how to think, not what to think. And then it was co-opted. And that's the part, Gwen, that I think that we've found ourselves like mucking about in now. And that is that we then saw adults transform the goal from a goal that serves a personalized education plan for a student to a goal that serves an, indoctrin an indoctrination or a list of content rather than our ability to think, our ability to search for ourselves, our ability to find purpose. So I'm again. I'm a listener, thinking, "Oh my God, how I would know. we com even try to do that?" I mean, maybe some of the efforts around more mental health things that are happening in the schools, but how do you listen and create a support system around each individual child? So, 
the movements that seem to be working. Look at curriculum as a personalized endeavor. And we have the technology now to build that out. And we see schools with personalized plans, portfolio expectations, um, ways that students are more centered in their learning, student-centered learning, inquiry-based learning, critical thinking learning. And we continue to work with young people to be those who drive their own boat. So they are in the boat. They are creating their own team they understand that they can build their curriculum on their own passions, their own purpose. They undergird the challenges that they have. But we kind of co-opted that as well and called it differentiation. And differentiation is critical, but again, we held the goal as being defined through content instead of through process. So curriculum has to be personalized. Leaders have to understand the importance of identifying how to serve multitude of different perspectives, how to serve all of our children. We speak to words like equity, but we don't really do our own work in what that means. We talk about cultural competency instead of cultural humility. Cultural competency is impossible for us to hold unless we've really stood in the shoes of somebody else. Cultural humility says, I don't know. Help me learn. Leadership changes when we do that. Curriculum changes when we do that. And then we encourage and empower our young people to rise up in ways that they have ownership of their education. And that's where it gets scary. And that's where we see such a divisiveness in our communities right now. When we start to, when we start to censor access to information, kids won't trust us. Mm -hmm. They know how to find that information. They know about other places in the world. They know about trustworthy adults. So when we try to control our kids and decide what goes in their brains rather than teaching them how to decide what goes in their brains with the guidance and the love of the elders and those who can move them and facilitate that process, then they will start to trust us. I'm just going to break in here just for a moment. And for those joining, this is Gwen Garcelon, and you're listening to The Inner Game on KDNK. I'm talking with Sonia Lindman, an educator, healer, and wise woman. Mm. And I, I just want um, you to say something about um, the importance of restorative justice or restorative practice, as it's. I think it's more helpful to call it. And And how is that emerging um, arena uh, what's what's the importance of that and the possibility of that for our kids and our educational models restorative practice finds its roots in indigenous culture and we touched on that a bit last time and um, in all of the years of bouncing I guess from every p 
possible philosophy and looking at every researched philosophy, evidence-based and heart-centered philosophy of what it means to evolve an education system. I spoke a little bit about our leadership, um, policy, procedures, protocols. They still live in a very structured and efficient society. And when we do that, we are not taking into account the stories of our children, the stories that bring kids to a place where they feel like they belong or they feel marginalized. So we talk a lot these days about discipline. We talk a lot about school safety. We talk a lot about fear, arming teachers, all of these different things that will create a safe school. First of all, schools are a community. They are not just a building. And when we talk about safety, we talk about what is a community for a young person. Some of our young people's most sacred communities are online. Some of our young person's most sacred communities have nothing to do with the school or even their families. So recognizing a person's personal history how they belong, and where they feel safe is how we then build safe schools. And safe schools can come from the concept and the philosophy and the structure of restorative practice. What that's built upon is a deep understanding that when we have an injured person, they injure the community. And when we have a whole person, they do not injure the community. So restorative practice is really the philosophy behind an appropriate and a heart-centered and a very justice-centered discipline system. Discipline at its core is about, you know, it has a Latin base, the word discipline, and it was kind of co-opted through like the study, the information gathering, and then it moved into like the concept of disciple, to learn from someone you trust. And now when we look at what it means to discipline kids in school or to have a discipline system, it's an external discipline system instead of an internal discipline system. It feels like, you know, with restorative practice, we discipline ourselves when we yes. feel our impact on each other. Yeah. And so when we get to be more connected to each other and understand each other more, we want to hurt each other less. Yes, yes. <laughs> so there are many different ways of looking at restorative practice and um, the history in the Maori in New Zealand or um, how it's been continued through circle beliefs in indigenous tribes in our country and how, how different parts of um, sovereign nations in, the in North America are using circle um, circles to solve problems right? and different ways we can look at relationship and respect and responsibility, repair and reintegration. And what that means is that we actually understand, we understand the story behind the wounded and we heal that because the ultimate intention is to reintegrate. If we want our community be, to be well, if we want our schools to be well, if we want our children to be safe, they feel they belong, 
They will have integrated love and trust and relationship in their community. So if that community is their school, the worst thing we can do is push them out. Mm, I'm thinking of that saying, you know, keep your enemies close. Oh. Um, because like when you, oh, you know, yeah. it's like when you, they're close, you you are less, you know, able to judge them and to like, you mm. know them, you, you understand them. Mm. Yeah, it's that distance. And isolation. Absolutely. That's there, the fear. There, there's, a whole, there's a whole philosophy out there on hold them closer, right? Yeah. So when a child feels like they don't belong, that's when they're dangerous. Yeah. When a child doesn't have anyone to talk to, when a child feels like they have no hope, when a child feels like there's nothing to lose, that's when they are dangerous not only for themselves but for the whole community right hold them closer means that we bring them in we understand their story and this isn't soft it's used around the world in restorative practice to reintegrate somebody so they belong yeah so they want to preserve and hold their community so they feel a sense of hope so they have a purpose mm. that's critical and to to lose them would be would be unthinkable so if we spend all our time on content and not enough time listening to each other and understanding and watching if people are feeling of a sense of belonging if they're displaying a sense of belonging if they're learning about belonging and how to practice it mm -hmm. you know like those things take time mm -hmm. and we yeah. have to start to prioritize them don't we right and we we are getting a lot of pushback on like yeah. social emotional learning right. and critical race theory and all of these things that people are using as buzzwords to yeah. say i'm going to do this in my home or um, this has nothing to do with schools. And really what it is, is it is the growth of a healthy community. Yeah. And if our intention is to really grow a healthy community, then we know each other. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how displaced or how different or how diversified we feel when we meet somebody else, when we know their story. When we know their story, we can help guide our relationship with them. We feel compassion. We can build that which will inspire them. And compliance is not transformation. Yeah. We have to build transformation in our young people so that they build purpose and they have the skills. And I, I mentioned Blooms. That includes content. But it is not the ultimate goal. Yeah. The ultimate goal is the transformation of a human being to be their absolute best self and to contribute that back to a community who respects and honors and needs them. Right. And that's, you know, that uh, seems like a, a curriculum in and of itself that can be practiced while um, introducing content. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so it doesn't have to be either or. Nope. And they are not soft skills. Right. Oh, God, Collaborative yeah. skills, yeah. communication skills, understanding and critically thinking. 
inquiry-based skills. Those mm-hmm. are those 21st century skills that we had kind of, like, we grew them and we adopted them, and then we got scared. Mm-hmm. And we started to say, but we need to be able to measure. And we say, what happens if we measure the health of our community based on the relationships and the integration and the empowerment? What if we change our goals? And there are so many authors out there right now that are moving these directions forward. People know that this is important. And we're identifying ways that we can change the goal. So for us as parents and community members and people who are, you know, care about our educational system, it sounds like, you know, an easy thing that we can remember is to look through the lens of, is this building community? Is this building belonging? Mm -hmm. And if it's not, then we've got to figure out a way to make sure that shows up, those community building skills. And I would add, does this result in the best life for this child? Yeah, and I guess we can't know that, but we can have that as a goal. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I do think that it takes a lot of vulnerability and a lot of compassion and a lot of bravery yeah. for us to look at ourselves and examine whether or not we're stuck in an old paradigm mm-hmm. or whether we're willing to perhaps say that what we're doing isn't working as well as it could, mm-hmm. that we have better models, that we have better ways of inclusive belonging and um, and it doesn't have to be exclusive yeah. of core knowledge right. and information. Yeah. But we have to carry we have to carry that in a way that we only we not only look at ourselves, but we look at our leadership, we look at our funding, we look at all of the hope. Ah, beautiful place to conclude. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening today. If you have a question for Sonia or me, you can join the Facebook page at the Inner Game and we'd love to hear your feedback and ideas and Oh, until next time. Here's a program from our archives. I don't know where the music is. <laughs> Thank you, Gwen, so much for having me. Thank you again. so much, Sonia. It. It's so wonderful to get to have these conversations with you. It's complex. And it is. You know, I guess at the end of the day, you know, we have to have that humility to look inside and see where we can change and grow and match and align with where we're going as a human family. <laughs>